0: Hello and welcome to The Wild Field, a sister site to the Ottoman History Podcast. I am Miha Pochensky, coming to you from Junda, a.k.a. Ottoman Island in the Aegean Sea, a place that Ottomanists like to congregate uh, during the summers to brush up on their language skills. And we're lucky enough to be joined today by Ashley Dimming, a Ph.D. student at the University of Michigan in the Department of History of Art. Welcome, Ashley. Thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here.
0: Uh, and I have to say that our, our topic today is near and dear to my heart as uh, someone who studies specifically Poland and the Ottoman Empire, because one of my first experiences with Ottoman uh, history and sort of the, the physical remnants of Ottoman history are these beautiful collections of tents that still exist in Polish museums um, and other places all over Poland that were gathered usually, so they say, during uh, conflicts in the past in the 17th and 16th centuries. Um, But we're here today to talk a lot about these tents. So, Ashley, give us a sense of how tents fit into the Ottoman Empire. I mean, first of all, people think perhaps tents and nomads, and and there's much ado about the the so-called nomadic history of of the Ottoman Empire and, and the ruling family. So how, how does this fit in? Is, no, is nomadism really at the root of these tents or not?
1: Well, by the time, with the earliest tents that that we have still extant, I mean, we're looking already into the 16th and 17th century. So the sultans are on the move, certainly. We have military campaigns, diplomatic missions, and they needed places to stay. So they built these magnificent silken applique, golds-encrusted palaces for themselves um, that could be erected at any station along the way of their routes, right? So on the one hand, they're they're practical in the sense that they can, um, the sultans were able to bring their homes with them, fabric homes, right? Um, But a lot of times, you know, I'm I'm asked about this idea of nomadism um, rather frequently, and when we're we're getting into the the let's call it quote unquote classical Ottoman period and beyond, um, we're in this high imperial stage. You know, we there may be some sort of symbolic lip service to the idea of nomadism, but that's really I don't think necessarily at the core of this. It's more about Imperial ritual and to be able to bring a palace with you and this is this is the other thing that I think is really important Um, The relationship to permanent architecture in the Ottoman Empire. So the the fabric architecture um, Which is what I've called it um, on a number of occasions. I think is just another iteration of architecture There wasn't really a, a huge difference I don't think between the way that space was constructed across media
0: so where were these tents being erected and and why?
1: Um, well, as I said, in in the kind of high Ottoman period, let's call it, the, the tents were used on campaign most frequently. But as the sultans really started to uh, retreat into Tokopa Palace more often than not, and of course you have um, other higher ups, Grand Vizier, etc., using tents um, while they're on the move. Tents were also used within the city, and this is um, what I've been interested in lately, um, is this, the later period when you have then, after the sultan has kind of come out of seclusion again, you have tents being erected around the city of Istanbul as well and functioning parallel to um, pavilions and kiosks and yalas along the Bosphorus and this type of thing. So again, as, as tents are really just another material architecture um they're used for all the same things so everything from domestic spaces to stage settings for imperial rituals the gearing of the sword um even you know murdering shesare for example so many different functions for these tents um really all manner of uses
0: are these uh showing up mostly in in when it comes to ritual is it public ritual or is it is it or is it something that is not typically accessible to the general population of of the capital when they
1: Well it depends certainly. Um I mean whoever could attend a girding of the sword would have done so regardless of the the setting of it. Um but then is if you think of like the 1720 Sorname, we have a lot of paintings of tents being used as sort of the fairgrounds for these celebrations um for the um, circumcision festival, right? So that would have had a, a much greater variety of, of viewership, right? But I think more often than not, we're looking at an elite class of, of viewers.
0: What sort of material are these tents made from, and does it does it change over time? And and also, what sort of elements are there within the tent itself that uh, one could speak of as being architectural? elements because i mean we think when i think tents i think uh, a pile of canvas and like some sticks a couple of stakes maybe a rope or two but like how does it how does it come together
1: it's interesting because you need there's necessary structural elements to a tent right um but at the same time what ends up being the standard like interior design of the these fabric buildings um mimics permanent architecture also So in the the high Ottoman period, there's really a standard color palette, dark blues, greens, and reds. And the general layout is sort of an arcade. Um, And in between the arches, there's schematic floral designs, that type of thing, right? And as far as the material goes, really, it, it could be all manner of things cotton wool silk in a lot of the 16th 17th century ones you'll even find bits of gilded leather accents in the applique Um, but in the later period the the tent makers get a lot more creative we have an influx of new materials silk and gold and new color palettes ranging from bright intense cerulean with gold stitching on it to beautiful pastel landscapes.
0: So how did you arrive upon this fascinating and seemingly untouched topic?
1: Uh, I actually started as a textile artist myself. I had my, my BFA from the Kansas City Art Institute, uh, wherein I, I was an art history major, but because it was a fine arts college, we had to also do studio art. And textiles was something that I'd just never done before and thought it would be fun to try. So as soon as I sat down to a loom, it was just perfect moment. (laughs) Um, It was a medium I I understood sort of instantly and and loved instantly. Um, So from that point on, I was really interested in the art historical significance of textiles in general. And through an internship at the Nelson Atkins Museum of Art, I um, found myself working with actually a series of Safavid tent panels. Um, so I guess that's where it all started um, but I, I dabbled in I, I always keep coming back to tents in in a sense in uh, when I was doing a master's program uh, at Indiana University in a seminar on Istanbul uh, that was when I first started working with Ottoman tents um, and then after a conference paper here and there and keep looking at these things and they keep popping up and keep coming back to me. um, This is what I think I'll I'll end up tackling for my dissertation in the next few years. Um, So I have a a strong art historical background as well as um, a textile arts background. And that's something that I think is really vital, is really at the core of this um, and as to why I find them so fascinating, because I think fabric in general is, is one of the most intimate objects that we have. It's its always in physical contact with us. And tents on this magnificent scale are, are defining the space around us and can change and move with us. Um, so I, I think that there's, and as you said, there's, there's sw- still quite a lot to be done here. With Ottoman tents in particular, especially given the fact that so many do survive. Um, and of course, Nurhan Atasoy uh, has published a book um, about 14 years ago now, uh, cataloging many of these in um, modern-day Turkey and outside, um, but uh, I really want to get into a little bit of the, the meat of, of analyzing these tents. What were the, how were the spaces conceived, and beyond just their functionality, you know, how and why did you know, the designs change over time, and, and what did that mean for, for the empire and, and beyond?
0: So, what is the the research experience like when when you're trying to track down these tents, and what kind of sources do you use?
1: I I want to look at poetry and prose and histories and all these kinds of things to think about and and try and understand the way that tent spaces were were conceived, with were thought of and viewed, right? Um, but I mean, obviously, for for my own interest, I think seeing the material objects themselves are a really um what can give you really the core of understanding of the, these pieces. And it's it's difficult because they're fabric and because they're a conservators nightmare. Um, to try and see these is rather difficult, but I, I was very lucky last summer to travel a bit around Europe to Poland and Vienna, um, Germany, and Istanbul of course, to try and track some of these tents down and see them for myself. Um, And I was able to do so, some of which were erected in exhibition spaces, which is amazing um, and really a unique opportunity, I think. Um, But many I saw them just unrolled in storage spaces, um, so you can really only get a glimpse of them. So we do also have to rely on um, pictorial evidence, so painted manuscripts and um, things like this to understand how... um, they were erected and in what kinds of spaces and how were they in relation to each other and that kind of thing.
0: Do do we have a sense of how many of these tents are left or or why are they preserved? How are they preserved? Why are they preserved?
1: Well, there's there's a couple different reasons for that. Um, Many are preserved in Europe because of the siege of Vienna. Um, you know, and all the the military expansion into Europe and the Ottomans losing many battles and then losing many of their tents. So in those spheres, the tents were kept as trophies and even used as spolia and emulated. And so there's a whole afterlife of of Ottoman tents in Europe, which is something else that uh, I've looked into as well the ones that are still in istanbul are largely the the later tents so from the 18th and 19th century some were used even up into the 20th century um and they were just in the imperials you know spaces and just were a- so acquired to the museum
0: constant presence in the repertoire of yeah. empire <laughs> absolutely <laughs> So, as the use of these tents evolves over time, how do you see the decorative elements of the tents changing and interacting with the type of messages that are being created with the tents
1: well, as I, as I said, along with the kind of addition of a whole new repertoire of materials and colors um, and these the new uses of, of tents on kind of on the shores of the Bosphorus et etc. Um, You get also experimentation in the interior design, let's say. Um, So beyond just what used to be an arcade with schematic flowers, um, and you get this very um, schematic sense of of the earlier tense where the pattern seemingly could just repeat infinitely in, in the lateral sense. In the later period, what is often referred to in art historical terms being westernization or Europeanization and so you have the Ottomans um, kind of opening up to artistic styles from Europe right but it it, it's a bit of a simplistic way to think about it and and so what does that mean really that the Ottoman tents are all of a sudden becoming quote-unquote Europeanized right so in looking at them what I'm seeing is um, more naturalistic rendering of flowers for example um you get sort of a sense of a a picture plane more rather than just schematic patterning. um, You get things, like I said, like landscapes or framed windows. Um, And these archways remain, but they start to feel more like a threshold, like a space that you could virtually cross theoretically. Um, And so I think it's especially interesting as... The form of the tents, the structure of the tents themselves, begin to open up more. So do the their potential virtual um, spaces start opening up in the in the picture plane of these um, embroidered and applique designs.
0: Do any of these motifs that are being used on on tents, and I gather it's mostly on the inside of the tent that you see the mm-hmm. really uh, ornate yes uh, decoration. Do they have parallels with more permanent Decorative elements, or with elements of more permanent architecture?
1: Absolutely. I mean, structurally and decorative. Um, there's There are parallels with Tocopa Palace in particular. Um, you have the idea, you have a fabric gate of felicity, you have a fabric tower of justice in all these tent complexes. I mean...
0: So they're, they're complexes sometimes. There's more than one tent that are... Attached to one another, or is it like a little tent city? Or oh,
1: absolutely, it's a tent city. <laughs> um, yeah, for for the encampment, for the encampments on the move, um, especially uh, in the earlier period too, when when you're on a dip- mat- diplomatic mission of sorts, um, you would actually have two full sets of tents with you. So the tent team would go on ahead and erect the entire encampment with the. The Otaga Humayun, so there's the imperial tent complex, the fabric palace, um, at, at the heart of this larger complex. And so while the, the sultan and everyone are residing in one encampment, the next encampment is already being erected. And then they move on to that one. So it's all ready to go for them when they get there.
0: So then the, the tent keepers and those people who are responsible for sort of establishing a mobile household, a mobile palace, they must be important people. Uh, within the the structure of the palace itself.
1: This is something yeah, I'm I'm still getting into, but as the records show, I mean is I think it's in the 18th century. I mean the number of people working in the the tent core like doubles if if not more. I mean there are hundreds if not thousands of people working on making tents and erecting tents and in addition to the structural parallels of permanent architecture and fabric architecture, mobile palaces, um, you also get parallels in the, in the decorative elements, right? So the the earlier tents, the kind of high imperial style, the appliqued elements very much mimic, you know, Isnick tile work in the palace. I mean, that's um, pretty standard across the board right Uh, with the later period though as I said there's much more experimentation Um, and the idea that the threshold of the picture plane is sort of what I'm trying to call it here um, is opening up to new elements so instead of for example
0: but the the threshold of the picture plane you mean the gaze or or what somebody's gaze meets when they're inside the tent what perspectives are involved in?
1: That's exactly the right question. What perspectives mm-hmm. are involved? Because you know, for those of you not familiar with art historical <laughs> um, productions of the the um, the way that space is visually represented on a two-dimensional plane, right? So the what we call linear perspective is discovered in the Italian Renaissance, right? This is what that's that's known for. But really, there are multiple ways of visually producing a virtual space on a two-dimensional surface. So, depicting the 3D on a 2D surface, right? And that's what you see a lot of that in the later Ottoman tents. So you have certain elements that are are shaded rather than um, being just like an outline, for example. So you get a sense of light and form and body to the motifs that are are being um, stitched into these things, right? And then on top of that, you have things like panoramic landscapes, which open up a different depth of field, right, as opposed to you know, large blooms that are in closer to you as the viewer, as opposed to uh, looking far into deep space of the landscape elements. So you have multiple perspectives occurring in these interior spaces, which does also reflect um, what's happening in permanent architecture, you start getting painted landscapes in these buildings as well. And and so and what they call, you know, the, the baroque elements and swirling ribbons and garlands and all of these things, these are all seen in tents as well.
0: Of course, the the main difference is that, that fabric is, is malleable, right? It's not stone, it's not brick, yep. there's no mortar, nothing like that. So how does the, the tent then interact with the natural environment around it? I mean, they move. I've I've spent a lot of time in tents, so the wind blows <laughs> and the tent shakes and the earthquakes and what, what's that like though? How does that?
1: Yeah, I think that is one of the most interesting things, but also the hardest to really comprehend, given the fact that these are now all in museums and and whatnot. But you, one can imagine walking into these spaces where the fabric is is built up and there are gold elements that reflect light also. So if these semi-closed spaces are erected outdoors and are gilded. You have the elements to play with, right? So you have the wind moving the fabric. You have light hitting it in all different ways. Um, So it's not just reflective, but the motion really animates the material and thus the decorative elements as well.
0: So within this tent complex, this sort of mobile palace, uh, I imagine that there are actually different tents with different uses as different rooms within a palace would have different uses what kind of non-ceremonial sort of daily life needs are met by the tent complex is there like a privy chamber tent is there a dressing room i mean how many tents are we talking about here
1: well it's hard to put a finite number on it but within the the demarcated space of the imperial complex within the larger tent encampment um of course you have all these um different functions for tents. You're going to need kitchen tents and bathroom tents, some of which survive. And there's actually some in the, the second floor of the military museum in Istanbul. You have execution tents, of course, um, which generally for whatever reason are conical in shape. Um, but you have, yeah, there's, so there are different, Forms and structures of tents that correspond to the functionality, right? And and one of those, I think, really is the the marquee shape, right? Which is this open space that functions very similarly to the gate of felicity in a Palace, right? So a, so a
0: marquee tent is a tent with that's missing a sort of front panel, right? It may have. T- three sides; it's sort of trapezoidal in shape, exactly. Um,
1: With a large awning, usually also. So it's this; it's an open form where, well, where, where the, the fourth wall is missing, right? And it functions very similarly in a stage because of that shape, right? Um, so it's a stage and a threshold, and this is what you see in a lot of the the manuscript paintings as well: is the sultan sitting in that covered space at the front or the gate of the imperial tent complex as he would have done at the gate of Felicity between the courtyards and Tokapa Palace. So, of, of course, then in imperial ritual, the idea of the threshold is itself really important. We have the sublime port, obviously. In Safavid spheres, you have Alikapu, so the, the lofty gate and these kinds of things. Um, if you're going to talk about sort of the idea of imperial symbolism, you also have the idea of light and shadow. On the underside of a lot of these marquees, you'll have this sort of sun design, an abstracted sun design, um, which if the sultan was sitting in there, it would sort of serve as a a halo for him, right? So you get the idea of of him being backed literally by, by a divine light. But you also have the idea of the awning itself creating shadow and the the Sultan being the, the shadow of, of God on earth, right? So there's also, um, I think, something to be said here for the idea of, of light and shadow and how that plays out in these kinds of spaces as well.
0: So I've noticed that on some of these tents there are, are things like... Windows or or curtain-like bits of fabric that are draping here and there, um, and it, it, to me it looks like a very baroque sort of thing. I'm used to seeing this in baroque architecture, but what what is that? What is that all about?
1: Well, it's interesting because as you know, architectural spaces windows are a necessary thing. You need light. You need air, and as well as curtains because you need to be able to break that space also to cover. Uh, the interior for privacy, right? But then, interestingly, within the, the the decorative program, you have images of curtains as well. And so this also plays with the idea that one could possibly virtually cross this threshold of these archways because a curtain is draped within them and pulled aside, you know, inviting the viewer to just step into that space. So it's, again, really breaking down these these Fabric walls.
0: Sort of a curtain on a stage. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So I gather that as you've been doing uh, your preliminary research sort of all over East and Central Europe and and Turkey, um, you've had a chance to see these tents in action a little bit because they still are an active part of people's uh, memory of of the history of whatever their own uh, nation is in the Ottoman Empire. Um, But What kinds of things have you encountered
1: well, I have to say, I think the, the most surprising and interesting um, event I encountered in the Military Museum in Vienna, um, as I'm taking hundreds of photographs of one of the tents they have um, installed there, uh, I start slowly walking away and then, and then I hear about a dozen small children come into the gallery space um, dressed up as knights and damsels is what the website calls it. And hardy musketeers, can't forget that. Um, and I, I looked into this and I, I snapped a, a picture of it quickly and looked into it. Um, and the museum actually offers um, children's birthday parties in the museum. Um, and, and as they describe it on the, on the website, um, part of this involves, quote, a side trip to the faraway Orient, many a strange thing is discovered and a visit to the Turkish tent will surely remain unforgotten. So, end quote. This is still an active part of sort of, as you said, producing nationhood and, and living in these spaces still today, um, with children in the museum, which I think is amazing.
0: Well, it, it beats McDonald's.
1: I think so. <laughs> I would love to have a birthday party in an Ottoman tent.
0: <laughs> and moving uh, slightly further to the north, but keeping with the same event, this, the Second Siege of Vienna in 1683, uh, I gather that the tent has remained a very important element of the narrative of this siege, which which is at itself sort of at the heart of even modern Polish national consciousness, all school children learn about this uh, and the importance of Leon Sobieski saved Europe uh, from the dastardly Ottomans. <laughs> but what what is it that you found in in this narrative that intrigues you?
1: Well, I think it's interesting because a lot of the tents in Polish collections and Polish collections house is they're the second largest kind of cache of Ottoman tents out, you know, besides Istanbul, right? Um, but the, so many of the tents in Poland sort of acquire a provenance dating them back to the siege of Vienna and being captured in the siege of Vienna. Um, most of them are probably not true. And these are, you know, often now um, really questioned, but I think the important aspect of that is the fact that they were then attributed to see the siege of Vienna. So, What role did that play, that the tents themselves um, really take on a a new life and and all these narratives that are are woven around them? Um, One that I found that I find really fascinating um, was published on the 200th anniversary and reprinted for the 300th anniversary of the Siege of Vienna. So that's 1883 and 1983, so not so long ago um describing the the siege itself and particularly Jan Sobieski's role in it. Um and the the author Paul Soblevsky describes this as uh quote Uh, Jan Sobieski had given for the day all hope of the grand struggle when the provoking composure of Mustafa, whom he espied in a splendid tent, tranquilly taking coffee with his two sons, roused him to such a pitch that he instantly gave orders for a general assault. And he himself made toward Mustafa's tent, beating down all opposition. So, end quote. So by this time,
0: so he was enraged by the tent.
1: <laughs> so by this time, <laughs> the tents themselves had, had acquired such power that it's the tent that is, is um, given as the reason for Jan Sobieski's you know, assault. And, and thus leading to the, his victory over the Ottomans.
0: And one can imagine in the 19th century, you know, in a period when, when Poland does not exist, but these tents do exist and are, are being used constantly in people's sort of daily rituals in Poland for weddings and other other ceremonies, um, ceremonies of state. They're being used by the, by the Tsarist government as well and other people that are ruling the territory. That the tent itself has come to represent the event. Well, thank you very much, Ashley, for joining us today, this lovely sunny day on Junda Island. uh, My pleasure. To talk to (laughs) us about your research. And we we really look forward to hearing uh, more from you as your work progresses. And good luck to you.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Join us again next time in the wild field as we continue to explore new research in the shared borderlands of Europe and Asia.